This I say, therefore, and testify the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which is after which is after God is which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Now I would suppose that most of us have a rather ambivalent approach towards change. We hate it, uh, mostly because we recognize that it entails some element of loss, at a minimum a loss of comfort. Uh, we don't like change. The old adage about how many pastors does it take to change a light bulb, and the answer is change. We don't change. And yet, we also desire change in some fashion. We recognize the bad and want it taken out of our lives. We want uh, change on our terms, according to our desires. And mostly our change desire comes from our perception of our comfort. That we want change that will increase our comfort or at least reduce those interruptions toward our comfort. And so our definitions of good and bad change, and even of what comfort is, need something to redefine them if we are to understand uh, the Word of God rightly. We need uh, His words to change us, to tell us what parts need to be changed and what parts need to be kept. For there are parts of our personality and being that ought to be kept, being as we are created in the image of God. That image, though corrupted, still persists in our nature. It reveals itself in our conscience. It gives the natural man unease in his soul due to the brokenness of his nature. It gives him uh, an unrecognized, unrealized, unaccepted, and rebelled against uh, need and feeling that there is necessity, necessary in him uh, regeneration. As those who are Christians, though, who have been regenerated, regeneration really is only the beginning. For we may be now in Christ uh, legally and forensically justified, declared righteous and pure and clean before God, but we struggle still with practical morality. And Paul illustrates this tension as he continues his practical instructions in the second half of his letter to the church at Ephesus. Having spoken of the pursuit of unity, building upon the unity that we already have as believers, he turns to another topic, which he has already discussed. In his theology of unity, he has mentioned the cultural and racial makeup of the church as being Gentiles. And now he uses the former lives of the members of the church as emblematic of their former morality, that which they have been taken from and that which they need to reject in their practice. This is a further application of Paul's moral methodology to encourage Christians to be practically who they are positionally. 
this is what God has done for you, and therefore live as if he has actually done it. He reminds the church of the reality of change in their lives. They have been changed, and so practically they are to change the way they live. And so Paul, in these verses, provides us with a contrast between our former life and our new life. Our former life and our new life. The former existence of the Christian differs not only in morality, but also in worldview. And so one cannot be divorced from another. Paul describes the former life of members of the church in terms of both mindset and behavior. Paul attaches his new section in the introduction to that section that began in verse 1. Look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify of the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their minds. You can I see, see here the reintroduction of the idea of walking. Here, the negative is used. In verse 1, it is walk worthy, and here it is don't walk. Walk worthy, but do not, and that walking worthy involves not walking the way they used to. He speaks to them of the testimony that he has received from Jesus. It is against the gospel to continue in your own life. It is against the testimony of Jesus to continue to walk as the Gentiles walk. It replicates what Paul has said in in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul finds the idea that those who are saved have no moral responsibility illogical. It doesn't make sense for you to say that because you are saved, you can live any way that you want. A new person cannot live the same way the old person lived. The new person created by the gospel cannot live the old life. And Paul continues by reminding the readers why the Gentiles, why they behaved in the manner in which they behaved. Verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Their minds are vain, futile. It doesn't mean that they are all unintelligent. It it points to a moral futility. It points to a frustration. It points to a mind that is kind of like in a hamster wheel. It keeps on running, but it doesn't get anywhere. It shows the mindlessness of human sin that becomes more and more apparent in our modern society. This vanity of mind comes from a darkened understanding, the spiritual lifelessness and ignorance due to hardened hearts. It is not an inability to think. It is a, it's a hindrance that is brought about by a moral conclusion. Their moral rebellion against God has left them unable to draw a correct conclusion from the data that is given them. They have separated themselves from life that derives from God. They have separated themselves from that which gives understanding, which is God. They have separated themselves from the one who has created the world, and therefore they are broken in their understanding of the nature of things. 
Look at Paul's description. It's not a lack of intellectual energy or effort. It represents a mental block, a moral hindrance to a spiritual perception. Unbelievers are not necessarily thoughtless, but human genius cannot overcome the sin's natural moral barrier to understanding. We learn many lessons about unbelievers, about our own situation before we were saved in this description. The rejection of Jesus, the disbelief in God, is not rational. It won't make sense to us. Because the people who reject God are doing so because of a moral deficiency. They are not able, because of their rebellion against God, to see Him. It is not an intellectual pursuit, it is not an intellectual conclusion as such, but a moral one that leads to rebellion against him. And that leads them without the ability to find ease in their soul. When you are looking for soul ease from any answer but the correct one, you have fundamentally broken your ability to understand anything. How can you hope to correctly infer any proper axioms about life if your fundamental basis is flawed? How can, if the fundamental premise of the unbeliever is untrue, that there is no God, that he is the only authority for truth and right, how can any of his moral arguments be sound? How can his soul logic ever work? How can he have any conclusions that equate from, to the world around him outside of his what the Van Til calls borrowed capital. The fact that the natural world and God's revelation are so unescapable that he has to come to grips with them. With such a broken understanding, isn't, is it any wonder that we see in the world so many people getting life wrong? Wickedness and folly are close companions. That's not my words, that's the word of God. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Ignorance and immorality walk together. It doesn't mean that immoral people can't be very intelligent or that simple people might be moral. Rather, it ought to change our estimation of what wisdom and folly really look like, what intellect and knowledge really are. Understanding isn't judged solely by intellectual content. A mind full and understanding lightened is determined by whether or not the knowledge of God forms the foundation of one's thoughts and life. This is who you were. You remember the futility of your mind, Paul is saying to the Christian church. You remember how your understanding was darkened. You remember the blindness of your heart. And Paul continues by describing the behavioral consequences of this morally bankrupt mindset in verse 19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. That callousness has numbed their sense of conscience. The immoral have calloused hearts. It is as if there is feeling there but not much is felt. It's less is felt. Think of a feather on a calloused hand. You may be able to still feel it, but very slightly. And the more calluses, the further you go, the more and less and less you are able to feel. 
That is how the unbeliever's conscience senses the guilt of sin. It may be there, but it is so weak as to be ignored easily. And with that desensitization of heart, is it any wonder that humanity descends into greater and greater examples of evil? Paul uses three nouns here that are joined by prepositions. The nouns are translated lasciviousness, uncleanness, and greed. These nouns are often used as indicators of sexual sins. They differ in their application. The first noun indicates the flouting of societal convention. In the past, we would have connected this to rather sins that even now seem to be commonplace, promiscuity and the like. In the past, this was the socially unacceptable sin, and sadly, we can no longer say this. Those who practiced this sin in the past were flouting the standards of society. And now we have a month in which we express pride in sins that past generations considered unmentionable. Even in a coarse society. And we clump them all in together, together in letters. The second noun, the, in the second noun, the works of uncleanness indicate the sins that defile the body. Lasciviousness, secondly, uncleanness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.18, Flee fornication, every sin a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Paul is clumping these things together. This is how far man goes in the blindness of their lives. They not only go into sins that are should have been societally unacceptable, even further and further away from what is even sinful society accepts as appropriate behavior. But they do so in defilement of their own bodies, in defilement of their own being. The final noun may function with the others. That these not only these sins not only flout societal conventions, they not only defile the body, but they have an inability ever to be content. Lasciviousness, uncleanness, and greediness. They are sins that flout societal norms. They are sins that defile the body. They are sins that are never can be satisfied. Proverbs 27.20, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of men are never satisfied. Romans 1.32, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Not only do our... Are we unsatisfied with our sin, but we are so unsatisfied that we want to gather around us other people who are unsatisfied with their sins. There is a gluttony, there is an addiction here that these sins have as a part of them. Does this not describe the world around us, a world filled with people doing foolish things, smart, intelligent-seeming people unable to live joyous and happy lives? If the media imitates or provides a barometer to such cultural of the culture surrounding us, our present media provides us with a bleak mirror of who we are or who our society is. Does not the behavior of the world match Paul's description? We see people sinning against the societal norm. We see them defiling their own bodies. We see them completely dissatisfied with their present depravity and lusting for more and greater uncleanness. 
But the th reason that Paul is writing this is not just that he is saying that is the way that the Gentiles walk, that you are not to walk like them, but he's also saying that this is the way you were. And there is something about ourselves that still clings on to these realities. Do we not see our own flesh governed by this kind of structure, this illogical, societal norm-breaking, own body-defiling, unsatisfiable structure? This is what we were before Christ saves us, and this is what we are when we sin. Sin is not wise, it is not right, it is not ennobling, it is not logical. Sin enslaves us by its addicting power. It comes from the broken part of our existence. It is a part of our former life, but we need to be governed by our new life. In contrast to the old manner of life, the members of the church have learned something about their new nature. There is a class into which every Christian must enroll. It is the class of learning Christ. For that class in learning Christ teaches us how to live Christ. Paul interrupts his description of the church's former Gentile life to insert a change in that existence. But ye have not so learned. Christ. It's almost as if here in verse 20 we see a copy of what Paul says in verse in chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy when we were dead in trespasses and sins have made us alive in Christ. And here it is a practical reality, but you who once were these people, with your understanding darkened, so enslaved to sin, have not learned Christ this way. It is the great change that God has brought into the life of every believer by his majestic electing love. You have not learned Jesus this way. Paul uses the name of the Savior as the name of the class or a subject. You can use this language. He can use this language because it reflects the totality of the Christian's experience. It's a change of nature that occurs in Christ. It is not just a one-time event that has no effect to it. You have learned Christ. You are united to Christ. And that united to Christ requires a learning that progresses throughout your entire existence. Paul does not doubt the church's understanding of it in the next verse, verse 21, if it be so that ye have heard him and have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Instead of if it be so that, it should probably be translated as inasmuch, inasmuch as ye have heard him. He ha they have heard him. They have understood him. The idea of hearing here is more than just basically an auditory sensation, but a hearing in order to obey. The church has had the Spirit break through all of that darkened understanding, correct all of that broken mindset, uh, rush through all of that uh, misunderstanding that is moral in its nature, and given them an understanding that is from God. The church has been taught the very nature of Christ and their union with Him. 
There probably is no overt meaning in the change of words from Christ to Jesus. Perhaps only Paul is here reminding the church that Jesus was the promised and anointed Messiah. The historical truth of Jesus as the Messiah is the foundation of the Christian faith. The rest of this passage requires some decisions about a controversy on its interpretation. The text includes three infinitives, to put off, to be renewed, and to put on. Verse 22, this is what they have been taught, the truth that is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is after God, is created in righteousness and true holiness. These are the three things that are infinitives, are to put on, to put off, to be renewed, and to put on. Now, two of them are in the aorist, and one is in the present. And these present and past ideas are, are difficult concepts in the Greek and often revert, refer to uh, other aspects. Putting on and putting off are often understood as punctiliar things. You put off something, and that doesn't have much continuing effect and you put on something that doesn't you don't think of that as a continuing action but renewing is sounds to us like a continuing action that's probably why it is in the tense that it is in but even more debate concerns the use of the infinitive is this what we have learned in Christ that he has done to us or is this Paul's way of encouraging us to do these things Because you can use the infinitive in Greek uh, to be a commandment. And while both are probably true, and maybe both were in Paul's mind, the context seems to indicate that the teaching uh, was foremost over the imperative, that this is what has happened to you. That this is what you have received from Christ in the gospel. The church was taught that in Christ they have put off their former manner of life, their old nature, the thing corrupted by their lying desires. Paul repeats this in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm reminded of that great uh, part of the Voyage of the Drawn Treader by C.S. Lewis or Eustace T. Scrubs. Uh, a great name for a, a villain uh, that you might think of in any book, Scrubs, is uh, brought into the land of Narnia, and he's not a nice little boy. Instead, he uh, is taken throughout and complaining throughout the entire book until he goes to this one uh, island as they are traveling from island to island in this boat, the voyage of the John Treader. They go to this island that is occupied by this dragon, and I love the description that Eustace goes and finds the dragon's hoard and covets dragon's gold, thinks dragon's thoughts, and guess what? In the morning, a magical place, he becomes a dragon. And that is, poses a problem because he can't uh, accompany his friends in the boat anymore because he's a dragon and they can't put him in the boat. And so what is he to do? He must not be a dragon anymore. And the whole experience changes him. And this change is revealed by the fact that at one point, uh, he wants to uh, be changed, but he doesn't know how. And so uh, the Christ figure, Aslan the lion, comes to him and says, you must change. You must take off your dragon clothes. And he scrapes himself and tries to, to take it off. And he can't. And so 
Uh, Aslan says, you cannot take off your dragoness. I must take it off for you. And so he takes off his dragoness and he returns him to his state as a boy. And this is what Paul is saying here. That when we were completely dragon-like, when we were uh, unable to save ourselves, when we were unable to take off the old man, Christ did it for us. The church of, of God, of Christ, is also taught by Christ that they are being renewed. They are united to him in the spirit of their mind. That that understanding which has been darkened is not only regenerated and renewed in a sense by our acceptance of Christ, but it's also being renewed. It's a process that that darkness does not evaporate at once, but it is continually being enlightened and, under, and our understanding is continuing to grow. But there is also something which is put on in our union with Christ. This new entity is created in the image of God, as Paul reminds us of Genesis 1-7. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him. And that you may put on, verse 24, the new man which is after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There's creational language here. The new man is creation restored. That new restored humanity includes moral newness and wholeness. This is what Paul means when he talks about righteousness and, and the holiness of truth. Righteousness could refer to justification, but Paul probably speaks here of moral righteousness, righteous acts, holiness, piety. People can be pious about many things, but here Paul modifies the term pious with the word truth. The man who has been changed and restored to God's image does righteous deeds and ex exhibits true piety. He is pious for the, in the truth and for the truth. The continuing event is the regenerated mind. It is that which God is still doing with us. Do you know this new man, or are you still trapped in the cycle of death that sin brings? Many pastors try to sell you Jesus. I don't try to sell Jesus. I present him. If I be lifted up, he says, I will draw all men to me. And only those who the Holy Spirit has opened their eyes and shown them the misery of their condition will change. Only those who the Holy Spirit gives understanding of their folly and the inescapability of their depravity will desire the change that Jesus brings. For he surely brings change and a new nature. He makes us who we were created to be. What needs to change about us is not our environment, our bank balance, or our relationships. What needs to change about us is not our jobs, our families, or our physical condition. What needs to change is our alienation from God caused by sin. We need to learn Christ, the truth that is in Jesus. For Jesus is God made man who lived perfectly obedient as the new man, who died to pay the penalty that sin deserved before a holy God, who rose from the dead to promise the resurrecting ability for us to live after the, his, new, his new man. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you turn from your sin and le learn Christ?
in Colossians, the parallel letter to this one, Paul uses a different idea of putting off and putting on. There, he instructs the church to put off sin and to put on holiness. And that is a perfectly acceptable interpretation and application of this passage. Yet the context does not seem to support it here in in this letter that is written to Ephesus. Because in the next verse, Paul will begin explaining the consequences of our regeneration. In Colossians, the specific imperatives are interspersed with the putting on, off and putting on. So why does Paul do it differently here? Are we not supposed to put off and put on and be renewed? Certainly we are. But we must always follow the emphasis of the writer between the already and the not yet. Here the already of our putting off and putting on and being renewed will encourage Paul's not yet imperatives which he is about to come on. Before he talks about exactly the specifics of what it means to put off and put on, he wants to encourage us that because of the gospel, God has already taken off. He has already renewed. And he has already put on. He wants to inform us and to press it upon us. You are not who you were. He's not saying you need to not be who you were. He is saying you are not who you were. You have already begun to put off, to put on, and to be renewed, and therefore continue in that. It is not as if God saved us and then said, all right, here is the rule, put off, put on, and renew. He is saying, I saved you, I've already taken off, I've already renewed, and I've already put on, continue in that which I've done. You are different. You don't have to become different now that you are saved. You are different now that you are saved. Walk like it. Don't use that old nature as an excuse for evil. It's not who you are anymore. Don't be okay with sin. Be dissatisfied with its foolishness. Be ready to confess and to recover the joy that is given to you in Christ. And it's at the Lord's table that we remember how we have learned Christ. We see the truth in Jesus. We see the broken body and the shed blood. And we remember how his spirit has taken off the old man, renewed our minds, and put on the one who was sacrificed for us. The table reminds us how we ought to continue the work of putting off and renewing and putting on as the Bible commands. We were enslaved to sin, but the body and the blood broke the chains that we may put off the old man in his ways. Our minds were blinded, but the body and the blood erased our moral deficit and our understanding and gave us eyes to see. We were dead in sin, but the body and the blood And the resurrection made us alive and put on Christ. So let us resolve to be that people today. Let us pray together. Lord, grant us grace to remember who we were and what you have done in and to us. Help us to live in renouncing our sinful past and living in the light of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.